0: Our clients who have had relatively robust immigration um, uh, strategies that involve petitioning for H-1B workers or H-2B workers or uh, immigrant visas find it very endearing. And that's because these foreign nationals, they want to stay here. They want to stay here the rest of their lives for the most part. And in order to do that, they work their tail off and they follow the law. They don't drink and drive. They don't abuse their spouses. They don't do things that are illegal. Um, And that's because they want that employer to take that next step. You know, have that have a little bit more faith in me. And, uh, you know, it's one more ask, but I'm worth it.
1: Good morning, H.R. I'm Mike Coffey, and this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR wherever you get your podcast: Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at GoodMorningHR.com. Despite concerns about a potential recession, U.S. employers are still hiring, or at least they're trying to. According to ADP, businesses created 208,000 new jobs in September. Unemployment was at three and a half percent and job openings remained above 10 million for the 14th straight month. As employers try to fill positions so that they can get products and services out the door, many are looking to bring labor into the United States from other countries. In March of this year, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services received a record 484,000 H-1B applications for the 2023 fiscal year. But H-1B visas, the largest category of non-permanent work visas, are capped at 85,000 annually, a number that has remained unchanged since 1990. That is five and a half visa requests for each visa actually granted. Joining me to discuss the realities and technicalities of U.S. employment-based immigration is Kevin Lashes. Kevin is a partner with the Austin office of the national law firm Fisher-Broyles. He is board certified in immigration and nationality law by the Texas Board of Legal Specialization. Prior to joining Fisher-Broyles, Kevin was an assistant attorney general for the state of Texas and worked in the U.S. Department of Justice, where he advised special agents during national security investigations, criminal immigration prosecutions, and worksite enforcement actions. Welcome to Good Morning HR, Kevin.
0: Thanks so much, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So, assume that I know nothing about employment-based immigration, which isn't a giant stretch, Give me just an overview of how that system works.
0: So as you alluded to in your introduction, employers are desperate to find skilled talent wherever they can. And because we now live in a global environment, some of those assets happen to be foreign assets. And so employers who are relatively sophisticated are very eager to utilize U.S. immigration to bring in work-authorized foreign nationals. Now, in the global Kind of vision that we've got as a, as a public policy initiative as it relates to global immigration, we want to be an exporter generally of democracy. And the easiest way for us to be an exporter of democracy is to offer an opportunity to educate foreign nationals here in the United States. So I live three blocks from the University of Texas. The University of Texas has a very robust international student services office that is not Uh, confined just to the public setting, private institutions also have the opportunity to bring those foreign talent into the United States. And so what we generally do is we educate them about their potential occupations, but we also do so in a manner where we're trying to identify kind of those classic United States public policies, Um, freedom, freedom of press, freedom of expression, uh, free economic um, um, movements, um, very little restrictions on trade, et cetera, and then we export that talent. Well, commonly, American employers fall in love with that foreign talent that's here and then engage them in an early opportunity out of college and then are using the United States immigration system in order to kind of cultivate that relationship to allow those foreign nationals to remain with that employer for the long-term could potentially be towards lawful permanent residency and more common than not, that permanent residency turns into citizenship.
1: But with so few, I mean, I think the total, total visas in any given year is like 140,000, right? So we've got all these, we're bringing people to the U S and educating them, letting them fall in love with America. And, you know, often at some level underwriting some part of their education and certainly investing uh, in them uh, with our, our our education system. And then a lot of them can't get a spot and have to go back to their, their country of origin. Um, Why do you think we're at, uh, you know, this, you know, you know, 85,000 cap on H1Bs, which is the most common for uh, uh, employment related visas after all these years since 1990,
0: right? In my opinion, the, the system's broken. And There's very little that Republicans and Democrats can agree upon. What they both can agree upon is that the immigration system is broken. There have been bipartisan approaches to fix the immigration system to alleviate exactly what you, you, you've identified, which is we're subsidizing public and private education to foreign nationals who want to stay in the United States and use that education that they've received uh, to benefit employers, but we limit the amount of visas that are available. Um, what Republicans would say, um, most Republicans, even the the um, kind of farther uh, right of the Republican Party would say they are very big supporters of legal immigration. Um, they understand because they listen to the business community that it is important for us to be able to have a process of identifying talent, cultivating that talent, and then holding onto that talent with a very robust immigration system what the democrats would say is obviously they are very supportive of business based immigration but they want a comprehensive reform to the immigration system not just to limit it to businesses what i would think um and you know mike and i you, know, you and i have worked together for the texas association of business um i think most uh, state chambers of commerce and even the local chambers of commerce would be very supportive of increasing that number of visas beyond 85,000. It could be 200,000. It could be a million visas. Um, And in that way, we kind of could supplement uh, the current workforce. Uh, Interestingly enough, uh, upon your uh, introduction, which is absolutely spot on, the Secretary of Labor testified before the House Ways and Means Committee about eight weeks ago and identified that there are 12 million Opportunities in the United States, and we just can't find the labor. Traditionally, business immigration has been about identifying what a prevailing wage is and then testing the local market to identify whether or not there is an able and willing United States worker that might be interested in that position. But even now, with so many job opportunities, um, even for those workers, uh, for those employers that I, I represent to sponsor even permanent residence in immigrant visa nobody's applying for those positions. Uh, and so I think the Biden administration is very aware and very cognizant that, um, you know, the immigration, uh, the inflation that you alluded to earlier, um, at least part of what's driving that inflation is an increase in labor cost. And the increase in labor cost is, it's all well, I mean, I think most employers would agree that we want our employees to live at a wage where they don't have to worry about housing and and transportation costs and food. We want to give them an environment that is comforting to them where they can be as productive as possible. Um, But even in that, you know, that that increase in labor costs causes this um, more of a slide between employers um, where your mid-level employees are finding it more advantageous to jump from one employer in, in a similar industry to another employer in that similar industry, um, just because of an incremental increase in that in that wage that they might um, uh, benefit from, and as a advisor to these businesses, you and I both know that that transaction cost of onboarding a new employee is is significant. And so if we can minimize the number of employees that are jumping between employer, then we can kind of add value to the relationship that we've got with our our clients um, so that they can retain that talent that they've already spent all of this time, not only training, but onboarding.
1: And you mentioned prevailing wages. And we just, you know, one of the big arguments has always been that immigration uh, suppresses U.S. wages. But we've just been through... 18 months of a real world test experiment. Right. Uh, And, you know, the labor participation rate is going down, even though wages are going up, we're at 62%. It's been going down for two decades. And for whatever reason, especially uh, uh, in the, the young male cohort cohort, people aren't participating in the workforce at at the levels that they used to. Um, And so, even if we, with wages going up, people still aren't entering the workforce. And, and, and if I'm right, prevailing wages, you have to pay your an, H-1, an H-1B visa employee at a higher rate than whatever prevailing wages. Is that right? Or is there there's some formula for figuring that?
0: No, Mike, you've got it absolutely correct. So whenever an employer is interested in sponsoring a foreign national to onboard in a work authorized visa category, and H-1B is the perfect example, they have to petition the Department of Labor to identify what the Department of Labor believes is the market wage for that occupation in that municipal um, location. So a market wage in Dallas, for example, for a software engineer may be uh, lower than a market wage for the same engineer in Seattle, Portland, or San Francisco, for example. Um, The reason why the Department of Labor asks employers to participate in wage surveys is exactly that. They want to collect that information to identify potentially what the market wage is so that employers who are spending a premium to onboard foreign talent because they've got to pay immigration lawyers, they've got to pay foreign recruiters, they've got to pay the fees associated with the government filings, that at least when we bring those foreign nationals in, they're right at the market wage. And I think If you took a survey of most practitioners in the immigration area who are seeing these wage calculations that are being provided by the Department of Labor, I think we would all agree that in most of the markets, per those industries, the wage is almost exactly spot on. I can't tell you how many times I've been involved in creating a strategy for an employer to bring in foreign talent we receive the prevailing wage and the prevailing wage is actually higher than the market wage. Um, That actually is beneficial for United States workers as well. And that's because if an employer wants to participate in an H-1B program, they have to agree not only to provide that wage to that foreign talent, but they've got to agree to provide that wage for all similarly situated employees within that same uh, category, which means that um, an employer... Is not only need to be prepared of the the costs associated with immigration uh, in order to hire foreign talent, but they need to be aware that 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 asset that they're attempting to recruit may incrementally increase the wages of all workers within that category. And so immigration not only benefits the foreign talent, but also benefits the workers if the Department of Labor believes that those workers are receiving a less than market wage in that metropolitan area.
1: So there's prevailing wages, and then what other constraints are on the employer uh, around how they design that job, and when they apply for a visa? What specifics about the job do they have to, uh, you know, detail to the DOL? What kind of commitments do they make?
0: Well, um, part of the obligation is basically what the United States employer is promising to not only the Department of Labor, but also the Department of Homeland Security, is that they're not going to treat that foreign talent any differently um, with any sort of disadvantage over a United States or similarly situated United States worker. What that means is if I'm going to offer an opportunity, it's going to be a full-time opportunity. If I'm offering benefits to United States workers, I have to offer those same benefits to that foreign talent. If we're talking about PTO or some sort of um, other 401k benefit, those also have to be similarly provided to that foreign talent. Basically, the system is set up in a manner that um, an external observer of workers that are similarly situated should not see any sort of discriminatory treatment. People should not be desperately impacted by their employment with that employer. And so what that means is, it's to the benefit of not only all of the United States workers, but also the foreign talent for an employer to participate in um, in immigration, in a robust immigration policy. What I can tell you is beginning all the way back to the Clinton administration, riding through the, the Bush administration, through Obama, through Trump, and now with Biden, all five of those administrations really put a keen um, eye on whether employers were actually trying to take advantage of the foreign talent. Were we paying them less than similarly situated United States workers? And regardless of the political ideology, each, each administration had kind of an enforcement priority to examine how an employer treated their foreign talent and tried to ensure that they were similarly treated to all United States workers, regardless of that, you know, wherever they were coming from on the political spectrum.
1: And, and how, do, how does uh, uh, any administration, how do they do that? How do they determine if this specific employer is, is breaking the rules? What are the, what are the enforcement mechanisms for that?
0: So actually both the Department of Labor and um, the Department of Homeland Security have their own audit functions. So uh, an employer who participates in a program that requires either a labor certification from the Department of Labor or at the end of the day, a visa application with the Department of Homeland Security basically exposes themselves to a compliance audit to ensure that if um, the Department of Labor or the Department of Homeland Security performed due diligence of that employer, that the employer was providing exactly what they said they were going to do when they petitioned for that opportunity to bring the foreign talent. It, it looks very similar to a fair. Uh, labor standards audit. They're going to look at our payroll records. They may potentially interview our existing employees. If those interviews may not be limited to the foreign talent themselves. They're going to look at the benefits that pay. Did we provide uniforms? Did we provide tools? Were the employees responsible for their own transportation to the work sites? And if there is some evidence that there was a treatment. Either we were treating the United States workers better than the foreign talent, or in some cases, we were treating the foreign talent better than the domestic workers, the United States and United States citizen and lawful permanent resident workers. Then there is an enforcement mechanism where either wage an hour or uh, fraud detection within the Department of Homeland Security can sanction an employer for failing to meet its obligations to its complete workforce, United States workers and foreign talent.
1: So as an employer, I have to demonstrate uh, to DOL and USCIS that there is actually a need that I can't get labor for this specific position, but does it necessarily have to be a technical position or are there there visa uh, opportunities for lower level, Uh, jobs that you may just not be able to find somebody to do?
0: So we spent some time um, early in our our visit discussing the H-1B, which is the most commonly used um, visa for employers who are bringing in what the Department of Labor has determined are high-skilled workers. So these are individuals who have either a bachelor's degree or by virtue of their experience, the equivalence of a bachelor's degree Um, in the United States. So that's your H-1B category. There's also an H-2B, H-2A category. Um, The Department of Labor, I think, wrongly identifies them as unskilled labor because for the most part, what they are is they're craft workers. They're individuals who, they're machinists, they're your pipe fitters, your welders, uh, your rod busters, your concreters who are every bit as skilled as a high-skilled worker. They just happen to work in an occupational category that requires what I believe are artisanal skills. And even in those categories, the employer is still required to test the local market, which means they've got to run an ad in an industry newspaper or um, the local newspaper of highest circulation to identify whether there are not United States citizens that are interested in landscaping opportunities or irrigation opportunities or harvesting apples, for example, in Washington state. And it's through the not only the advertising, but also um, any sort of petition that goes to the Department of Labor in these unskilled categories also requires a job opportunity being posted with not only the the local workforce commission, so it'd be the Texas Workforce Commission in my neck of the woods, but any state workforce agency. There's also a posting of the same opportunity in what we refer to as uh, Seasonal Jobs, Seasonal Jobs USA, which is a a separate and apart, uh, basically, job opportunity um, clearinghouse that the Department of Labor runs off of their website as well. So not only are we um, advertising the opportunity, um, via newspaper or via, uh, job posting with the state workforce agency. It's a global recruiting approach where they identify that we have an opportunity in Lockhart, Texas, for example. Uh, and anybody can apply for those opportunities. What I've seen, Mike, is probably what you're saying, uh, amongst all of your clients, um, which is that, um, We're in a real tough labor market. Um, I don't know if it's a combination of the pandemic. I don't know if it is just we're losing all our baby boomers. They're all retiring. I don't know if it's because of a result of No Child Left Behind, where we decided that we wanted um, kids that were attending elementary school to be college ready when they graduated as opposed to seeking out a vocation. I mean, when you and I were in high school, there was vocational school. If you decided as a sophomore, you know what, I really want to be an auto mechanic, you could have stopped your you know curriculum in high school and gone to work at, I a, have done at a vocational that. school <laughs> you, you would be surprised at how well welders get paid in uh, right in, in, in far west texas but um yeah I, I think um you know like you and i provide services because our clients are ha- having a pain point you know they've got some sort of impediment to being the best they possibly can. I don't know if it's a combination of the fact that we no longer have vocational opportunities, or if it's pandemic related, or if it's the loss of a baby boomer generation. What I know is the pain point that, that our clients have in common is um, labor is impacting their ability to be as profitable as they want to be. Our clients are not coming to us because they want to abuse their employees. They're coming to us because they want us to assist them in advising them on how to cultivate productive workforces. If that means that we provide additional benefits, if it means that we give them, you know, a family leave, if it means 401k, if it means immigration benefits, they are seeking a workforce that will be as productive as possible because each of our clients believes they have the greatest idea and they just need people to assist them in effectuating that idea.
1: And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. We've all heard the traditional advice when it comes to considering applicants' criminal history information. Look at it on a case-by-case basis. And for many employers, that's basically their policy, whether they've actually written it down or not. The problem with this approach is that it almost always is guaranteed to introduce bias into the hiring decision. This applicant went to the same school as I did, or I can really relate to his circumstances, so I feel more comfortable with his criminal history. But those aren't things that actually mitigate the risk someone may or may not pose in your organization, and they put you at risk of creating a disparate impact. To help create a more fair and robust system for evaluating the relevance of an applicant's criminal history, I've recorded a free webinar entitled, How to Fairly and Legally Evaluate Applicant's Criminal History. In this one-hour webinar, I cover the process of assessing the risks associated with a position and identifying what kinds of past behavior may be relevant to those risks. And this webinar is approved for an hour of recertification credit from both HRCI and Sherm. You can watch this and all of my other webinars on demand at imperativeinfo.com. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for one half hour of recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on Recert Credits. Then select episode 69 and enter the keyword lashes. That's L A S H U.S. and now back to my conversation with Kevin Lashes. Like you said, the uh, unemployment has been nuts uh, throughout. You know, we we shut everything down in 2020 and, and grinding the machine, getting you know, ground the machine to a halt, and then getting everything fired back up. And for whatever reason, childcare, emotional turmoil, uh, just not you know finding work to be particularly enchanting or fulfilling for whatever, a lot of people just aren't coming back. And uh, and em- employers are having to figure out how to get the work done with what's available and and, where, and look for other places where they can find that labor.
0: Absolutely. You, you'd be amazed how many calls I've been receiving during the last six months of an employer that said, we didn't think that we would ever be in the immigration business because it's right. it, it's a cost. It's a sunk cost. and it's, it's an expense. But we just can't find somebody for this job.
1: So an employer invests in that H-1B visa or whatever visa program and, and, you know, legal fees, filings, all of that. um, How long when somebody gets a visa, can they, you know, an employment related visa, how long can they actually stay?
0: Well, I I really love this portion of um, my practice because as long as that employee is with the same employer, Their immigration history will uh, continue to evolve. So commonly when you receive an H-1B worker, that initial visa is good for three years. If that relationship is, is, is a good one and it's the right match, then a client will then ask for an extension, which is another three years. If during that six years we found a superstar, Mike, we want this guy to stay with us forever, then we'll take that next step and petition for them to receive an employment based immigrant visa. Then, using that immigrant visa, potentially, that foreign national wants to stay here for as long as they possibly can. We will evolve that relationship towards a lawful permanent residency or what uh, people commonly refer to as a green card. And based upon that single non immigrant visa application, that H 1B, eventually that foreign national can can naturalize. They become a a United States citizen. And not only that, but once they become a United States citizen, if they've got a foreign spouse or a foreign parent or a foreign child, they can then take the next step, which is let's go ahead and leverage this, what was originally an employment uh, relationship into a familial or a a unification relationship where we're bringing the parents uh, into the United States as immigrants as well. So it is an opportunity um, Our clients who have had relatively robust immigration um, uh, strategies that involve petitioning for H-1B workers or H-2B workers or uh, immigrant visas find it very endearing. And that's because these foreign nationals, they want to stay here. They want to stay here the rest of their lives for the most part. And in order to do that, they work their tail off and they follow the law. They don't drink and drive. They don't abuse their spouses. They don't do things that are illegal. Um, and that's because they want that employer to take that next step. You know, have that, have a little bit more faith in me. And uh, you know, I, I, it's one more ask, but I'm worth it, right? Uh, and so that's what is a li- is is very fulfilling about an immigration practice.
1: Does an employer have to recertify the need for that labor? when they renew that person in three years. So, uh, you know, I, you know, we, we had a, you know, we had a shortage of, of nurses or, uh, you know, three years ago, but now, you know, there's a, there's a glut of them. Do I have to, as an employer, do I have to re-examine that or can I just renew that and keep that person working for me?
0: If you're just extending a non-immigrant visa, you do not need to test the ma- the labor market. You are required to identify whether or not the the salary that you will be paying during that extension is still a market salary. It's still a competitive salary, but you don't have to test the market. You will, though, have to test the market if you're converting that non-immigrant H-1B, for example, into a green card. You're going to have to go back to the Department of Labor and say, you know, this H-1B superstar that I have, we're going to promote them into this position. Um, and the Department of Labor is going to say, well, if you want them to stay with you permanently, we're going to have to test that market one more time. Uh, what I will tell you, though, is commonly um, because of the characteristics that have been cultivated in that foreign talent, an employer can be really artistic about the job description uh, to limit the potentiality of a of, of mass application for that opportunity. You can you're going to be able to. Uh, identify that that foreign talent has honed very, very specific skills. And so when you test that labor market the next time, you're going to be able to identify those skills that that foreign talent has honed that very few other uh, United States workers may be competitive in utilizing.
1: Because I have three or six years of experience working in your particular market on your particular software applications and and delivering your particular product. Okay. Exactly. Um, that makes, you yeah, know, and that makes sense. Now let's say, you know, I mentioned uh, earlier, I think we're in a recession right now. I just don't think we're feeling it fully yet. Um, but let's say we get into Q1 of, of 2023 and things slow down and employers start to uh, talk about layoffs. Is there any preference when layoffs come versus you know, for uh you know, domestic, you know, U S citizens, uh, employees versus, uh, uh, visa employees? Do we have to give preference to, you know, our, our, our own nationality before we do that?
0: I, I, when it comes to layoffs, you have to uniformly apply whatever approach you're going to take. Is it based on seniority? Is it based on productivity? Um, you know, whatever assessment tool you utilize to identify which of the workforce you're going to lay off, Um, It's going to have to be equally uh, applied to not only your foreign talent, but also to you, your United States citizen talent. And that's because the immigration laws provide both the foreign national and your United States citizen to complain about the way that they were treated. Um, You know, a lot of folks focus on Section 274 of the Immigration Act because that's where the I-9 lives. That's where the uh, employment verification function in 274A. In 274B is the immigration-related non-discrimination, non-discrimination provisions. And a lot of employers are not aware that when they are assessing how they're going to either discipline or lay off uh, United States workers or foreign talent, that they have to uh, assess them with a With rose colored glasses. They can't take the nationality or the citizenship of the employee into consideration when they uh, assess who it is that they're going to lay off. So, again, it's at that time um, when an employer is unfortunately considering layoffs that they should contact somebody who has experience with um, drafting and implementing a strategy to lay off employees in a very non discriminatory fashion.
1: The Biden administration, you know, we've got a couple of years under our belt now, and there was a lot of talk about what was going to happen with immigration uh, with Democrats in control of the House and the Senate and the, the White House. Um, is there, either on the legislative side or on the rulemaking side, anything significant so far uh, that's happened or that you anticipate anytime soon?
0: So uh, one of the things that just recently occurred was, uh, and I know you're you, you're pretty sensitive to it because you and I have discussed it, is that deferred action for certain alien um, um, foreign nationals that, that are current, per- yeah. yeah, exactly. The so the yeah. DACA. So the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals recently upheld uh, a Texas federal court um, that opined that the Obama. Um, DACA provisions violated the Administrative Procedures Act. Now, what they did was instead of um, compelling the administration to rescind DACA, what they did instead was they remanded the case to the original federal court to assess um, President Biden's recent rulemaking on DACA. So, notwithstanding the fact that the Obama provisions have been Invalidated by a lower court and affirmed by the Fifth Circuit, President Biden, I think, was very well aware that there were going to be challenges to the Obama um, version of DACA and went ahead and, through his executive authority, promulgated new rules. What the administration is doing now is they are really kind of um, putting both hands around their ability to implement immigration changes by executive order. I think the Biden administration learned quite a bit from the Trump administration, and has been pretty aggressive about um, expanding immigration benefits to foreign nationals. We're seeing it with DACA, we're seeing it with temporary protected status, we're seeing it with the flexibility of the I-9 employment verification functions as it related to COVID and the examination of original documents, for example. The other thing that the Biden administration has been doing is significantly increasing the number of federal employees that are working for their um, agencies that support the immigration policy. So you're seeing a lot more um, being hired for the consular corps at all of the Department of State consulates throughout the world. You're seeing a lot more money for adjudicators at USCIS, uh, national processing centers and local Processing centers. Um, and I think th- what the Biden administration has realized is not only can they impl- implement new immigration policy by executive order, but they can also streamline the processing both abroad and domestically if they're able to redirect resources to those ends. So um, at the end of the Trump administration and the beginning of the Biden administration, we're seeing processing times. Um, that have been exponentially increased. I know one of the issues you and I deal with all the time is um, we've got I-9 re-verification that we need to perform, but the employee does not have their EAD card or their lawful permanent resident card because of processing delays. Uh, And so the Biden administration has provided guidance to employers about being flexible about the re-verification requirements. But yes, you are right. I think the Biden administration has learned so much about um, being able to implement policy changes by executive order that we are going to increasingly see uh, this administration attempting to uh, legislate immigration reform through that article one executive power.
1: and it's interesting because the administrative state is 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 you know, in a lot of ways one of the vampires I'd like to put a heart a stake in the heart of personally, but You're right. you know you saw oh you know, everybody complained when Obama did it. And then a whole different set of people did complained when Trump did it. And now we've gone back to the original group of people complaining about right. the, the Biden administration. But um, sometimes maybe the ends justifies the means and, and we just need to get need to get some of this stuff just done and and getting Congress. And it's, you know, the I think it's fair to say that the, while the Republicans get a lot of well-deserved at times beef about being anti-immigration, uh, it's a lot of the Democrats' constituencies are pushing against, high, you know, uh, you know, additional immigration uh, visas and stuff too, because they're protecting their own self-interest and and, and you're absolutely and right, and things like that. You're um, absolutely right. One last thing. So we get into a situation where you know the pandemic happens and we realize, wow, we can work remote, and now a lot more companies are working remote more and more. Um does that do you think that if things don't change do you think just your employers are going to start more employers are going to either start working you know become multinational employers and start you know opening offices i think the single largest source of country that uh H1B's come through is from india i believe uh That's are we going to start opening uh, start opening uh more offices in india uh, you know and and wherever else you can you can find the labor Uh, Do you think that's going to be a result uh, and maybe take some pain off of off the immigration system and just find more and more jobs abroad? And what do you think that'll do if that happens? What do you think that would do to the labor market here?
0: I agree with you entirely, but it's been happening, Mike, since 1996 when we had that the economic, um, you know, boon that was kind of the, the shift to the tech tech economy. Um, You had big employers like Microsoft and Oracle and, um, you know, um, Intel, who had difficulty in petitioning for H1B workers. And so they opened up shop in Dublin and in Vancouver and in Toronto. I think you're right. I think the pandemic has provided a window for opening up foreign offices that I think a, a bunch of domestic employers would have been a little bit myopic about. Right? they wouldn't have ever conceived of having a situation where they had uh, workers you know that were remotely working in in india and in south America and australia and New zealand but i think the reality is because we weathered the pandemic um, the economy is only right now going through a recession um, because of a combination of you know supply chain issues we've got oil supply issues. We've got, um, you know, obviously the instability, the political instability in Ukraine. Um, But for the most part, I think a successful employer is going to look at every opportunity for them to grow. And if that opportunity is opening up an office in uh, in Berlin or in Milan or in Barcelona, I think they're a lot more open to it than they would have been two years ago.
1: Yeah. And the downside for the U S on that is that's tax revenue that we're losing. Uh, You're right. and, and we're not, you know, we're not investing in people here in the country to build our, our brain trust and our next generation. I mean, this people move here. They have kids here. The kids grow up in the, in our school systems. They get educated. I mean, we need to continue to do that. And, and when we've offshored that, that stuff, not, I've got nothing against the offshoring. You, you got to do what you got to do to run your business. But I, I think, uh, our, our intransigence on, on dealing with employment issues is going to hurt us a long time.
0: Couldn't agree with you more.
1: Well, thank you for joining me today. That's all the time we have. I appreciate it, Kevin.
0: Absolutely, Mike. Anytime.
1: And thank you for listening. You can find previous episodes, show notes, and contact info for our guest at goodmorninghr.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcast. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer, and I'm Mike Coffey, as always. Don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. I'll see you next week, and until then, be well, do good, and keep your chin up.